Well, this morning we're in the book of Jonah and we bring a conclusion to uh, our journey through this Old Testament minor prophet book. Uh, And we've seen already in these messages that Jonah is a very unlikely prophet with a set of unlikely directions given by God to go to an unlikely place to deliver the message of God's mercy and grace. And you'll remember that as we started four weeks ago, back in chapter 1, the story starts off with God commanding Jonah to do a very unlikely thing, to go and to speak to the people of Nineveh, this great city, the capital city of the kingdom of Assyria. And we found that as Jonah hears from the voice of the Lord, instead of responding in quick obedience, Instead, he responds in disobedience. Instead of going east toward Nineveh, Jonah Jonah, uh, instead chooses to go west toward Tarshish. And so he goes down to Joppa and he sets sail on a ship bound toward the coast of Spain. And while he's on that ship, God sends a huge storm and it hurls itself against that little vessel And the sailors begin to fear for their lives and they begin to pray to their own gods. Meanwhile, Jonah is down below deck sleeping. The sailors cast lot and they discover that Jonah is the culprit, that he is the one who is responsible for the mess that they are in. The sailors ask him what they should do and he suggests that they should throw him overboard, not wanting to do that and not to have the responsibility of his life on their hands They're reluctant to do so, but ultimately do throw him overboard. And we see that that Jonah is beginning to sink down, down, down to the bottom of the sea where God in His mercy and grace picks him up in the mouth of a great fish. And that great fish, and there Jonah stays three days and three nights, and that great fish begins instead of going westward toward Tarshish where Jonah had been headed, instead that fish begins to go eastward toward Joppa. And we believe that somewhere along the place where Jonah first started his disobedient journey, that the fish vomits Jonah up on the shore and he's back to square one where he started one at the first point. And then we see God coming, as we saw last week, God coming back to Jonah, giving him a second chance to obey. And we looked last week at the the wonder of it all, that God is a God of the second chance, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the tenth, and the hundredth chance, and that God spoke to Jonah once again. The directions had not changed. The command and the directive were no different than they had been the first time. And the second time, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, you are to go to Nineveh and preach judgment. And the the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and puts the message that he's to preach in his mouth. We discovered last week that it's a fairly simple message. In the English Bible, it's only eight words. In the Hebrew Bible, simply five words. And Jonah was to go throughout this great city, to go up every street and alley and avenue. And as he went, he was to give the message of the Lord. Forty days, Nineveh, forty days. And if you don't repent, God is going to judge you and overturn you. And so this message did not fall on deaf ears. But according to chapter 3, we discover that the people of Nineveh heard. And it was not only the people who lived on the streets that heard this message to repent, and turned toward the living God, Yahweh, but it went as high as the White House in Assyria, in Nineveh. And the king heard this message that Nineveh was to repent, 
And so the king ordered that every living creature, every man, woman, child, every living and moving beast, every animal was to be clothed in sackcloth and ashes and should repent. And so we saw that there was a great turning of hearts that took place. And this city, which was once a sin city in reality, a wicked city, a city that worshipped pagan gods, irreligious people occupied and inhabited this great city of 120,000 people because of Jonah's obedience to the word of the Lord. And he goes and preaches this message of repentance that the city, the hearts of the people turned toward the living God and they repented. And we are told that the greatest revival in all of the Bible, in fact, the greatest revival in all of history, took place in that day in Nineveh. And hearts were turned and people found uh, what it was to be a follower of the living God. And so here we are on the heels of this great awakening, a great spiritual revival that was taking place in Nineveh. And here we are in this final and fourth chapter of this little book tucked in before Micah. And here we find in verse 1, Jonah's response to this tremendous spiritual victory. Look at it in verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. What? got to be kidding me. God had just worked wonders in the city. God had transformed by His gracious power the hearts of 120,000 people. The whole city, every animal, every living beast had been clothed in sackcloth and ashes. There had been a great revival and spiritual awakening. And what is Jonah doing? But Jonah, he was displeased. And he was angry. It seems to me that Jonah is always in the wrong place and doing the wrong thing. God is headed in one direction and Jonah is always headed in the other direction. God says, Jonah, you are to go east to Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? He goes west to Tarshish. God says, I want you to go preach this message and, and I'm going to honor that message and I'm going to bring about a spiritual awakening. And God is moving in a direction of spiritual awakening. And, and what does Jonah do? When, when this great awakening takes place, all of a sudden Jonah begins to pout and he said, and here it is. God is showing his compassion and Jonah can't take it. He can't sleep. He can't eat. He can't believe that this is actually happening. He looks at Nineveh repenting and he and being forgiven by God. And what happens? Jonah heads the other way. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is the biggest I told you so in all of history. Didn't I tell you, God? That's why I was so... And then he begins to rationalize his sin of disobedience. That is why, God. That is why the, I, I chose to be disobedient and I, and I fled to Tarshish because I knew this is what you would do. I knew, Jonah says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. You are one who is slow to anger and abounding in love. You are a God who relents from sending calamity. And what is Jonah's response to this gracious and merciful God? He says, now, 
because you are gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Now, Lord, take away my life. Let me die, for it's better, Jonah says, it's better for me to die than to live. What's Jonah saying here? He's simply saying this. God, if you're going to have mercy on these wicked people in Nineveh, if you're going to save people like that, if you're going to rescue them from the pit of hell, then just go ahead. Do it now. Put a fork in me. Kill me now. I don't want people like that. I don't want ninnies to experience the grace and mercy of God. I don't know about you, but at this point, in this little book, I just want to reach into the pages of Scripture and grab him by the collar and say, Jonah, don't you get it? I mean, you're a prophet of God. You're, you're God's spokesperson. You're, you're His ambassador. Don't you get it? This is what God wanted to do. This is what God is all about. He wants to save people in their lostness. And God has done it, but Jonah's not happy about it. To put it bluntly, Jonah is absolutely ticked. And in his anger, I think we look through a window into his soul And we really see what's going on in his heart because I think Jonah in his anger is expressing his true feelings and gives away the motivation that he's had all along the path, even from the point of the original call from God to go to Nineveh. You see, it seems to me that here in chapter 4, we see Jonah not being afraid of failing but that Jonah's biggest fear was one of succeeding. That he would come to a place and he would get to this wicked city of Nineveh and that God, because of who God is, that instead of God acting in wrath toward these wicked, irreligious pagans, that God would be as good to the Ninevites as God had been to the children of Israel. Jonah knew that if he went to Nineveh and preached this message, he knew in his heart that they would repent. And the problem we see here in chapter 4 is that he didn't want to see that happen. He didn't want them to repent. Instead, Jonah, I think, wanted calamity to be showered down on the people of Nineveh. You see, Jonah was okay when grace was extended to someone like him, but he didn't want grace to be extended to a secular pagan. It's okay, God, when you show mercy and grace. It's okay because you're slow to anger and abounding in mercy and grace when you show mercy to the people of God. But don't you dare, God, don't you dare show grace to irreligious pagans. And so he prays, Lord, take away my life. I'd rather be dead than alive. To me, it's an unbelievable prayer. In the early chapters of Jonah, we see that Jonah's going to die, and what does he pray? He prays, God, let me live. And this time, Jonah's in the middle of an amazing spiritual triumph, and what does he pray? God, let me die. 
In effect, what Jonah is saying here is simply this. God, I knew it was your character to show mercy and grace. I knew that this is what you are like, and I didn't want to see these people repent. I didn't want them to get off easily. I wanted them to be burned to a cinder. And so Jonah kind of sticks it into the back of God and says, God, just kill me now. Get it over with. But then God comes out to Jonah and he just asks him a simple question. Jonah, what's up with you? Do you have a right to be angry? Because I've showed mercy and grace to these 120,000 people. Do you have any right to be angry? What's God saying there? God is asking him, is this your world? Is this your city? Did you make it? Did you invest in it? Did you create the people who live there? Did you create the cattle? Do you have any right to impede my sovereign plans for this city? Do you have the right, Jonah, to pout while I'm rejoicing over these lost ones who've come to the living God? And Jonah can't even think of an answer. He has not, he's dumbfounded. He doesn't have anything to say. He just stomps away like a three-year-old and heads toward the eastern boundary of the city of Nineveh. And he sits on a cliff and he pouts and he says this at the beginning of verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. What was he doing sitting there in that shelter on the eastern boundary of the city? He was waiting to see if perhaps God would change his mind and after all, God would come to his sentences and instead of showing mercy and grace that God would would punish the people of Nineveh, those irreligious pagans. This is just superficial. This repentance, this spiritual awakening, is just a, a little blast here. But God, you'll come to your senses and you'll realize that you should burn them to a crisp. And Jonah is just waiting for God to do that. And then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head. God comes to him in the vine and gives him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at the dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, It'd be better for me to die than it is for me to live. I just love Jonah so much. Time and again, God comes to him in mercy and grace. He gives him another chance. He gives him another opportunity to get it right, and he continues to mess it up. I see myself in Jonah. I see us in Jonah. God comes out to Jonah. He's sitting there pouting, hoping that God would change his mind and with a blast of thunder and lightning would destroy the city of Nineveh. Jonah sitting there pouting and God comes out to him. He wants fire to come down from heaven. He wants to see the Assyrians burn. He's still harboring bitterness against this wicked nation. And I see so much of Jonah in me. He's able to harbor a grudge for a long time. Resentment is in his heart against the Assyrian for their wickedness. 
I wonder how many people in this room are harboring a grudge this morning. I wonder how many of you have have allowed a, a, a root of bitterness and resentment to grow in your heart and you're just not going to be satisfied unless God punishes that person that you're resenting or holding a grudge against. You're on the east side of the city waiting for God to destroy that individual. You just, you just want to see something happen to them. You, you don't want good to come to them. You, you want them to feel the pain. And you're not going to be happy until they feel that pain. Now that's where Jonah is when this vine springs up out of nowhere and we see for the very first time in this passage that Jonah is finally happy. Now, His happiness doesn't last very long. In fact, it only lasts for a day. But for a moment, he is happy. In fact, in the Hebrew, in the original language, it says that Jonah is exceedingly happy. Happy. He's happy, happy, happy. He's happier than a tick on a dog. He's happier than an auto body repairman after a huge hailstorm. This guy is happy. Why is Jonah so happy? Because he's comfortable. He's comfortable. He's sitting in the shade, sipping on iced tea. He's happy. Jonah loves the vine because Jonah's into comfort. It's all about his comfort. He would have rather than God telling him to go to Nineveh and preach judgment against Nineveh, he would have rather that he could have stayed home in his comfortable Lazy boy recliner. He would have preferred that God would not push him out of his comfort zone and into this, this place that, where there's so many wicked, irreligious people. You see, Jonah's, Jonah is always about comfort. I see so much of myself and so much of Jonah in me. I see a lot of Jonah in us. We're into comfort. Let me ask. Do you like the padded pew you're sitting in this morning? I am told by the architect and the designer of this building that uh, when it came to purchasing the pews that would be in this room, that we spared no expense whatsoever, that we bought the very best pew possible, that the, the seat that you're sitting on has all kinds of uh, extraordinary spring action in it and that everything about it, the, the thick thickness of the padding and all, is designed for your comfort. I think we made a horrible choice when we picked these views. And here's why I think that. Because it's awfully easy to get comfortable in the house of God. And just like Jonah, sitting in the comfort of that vine, sipping tea and fanning himself, There are a lot of church people today who are very comfortable in their churches while there are people outside these walls that are spiritually lost. They're going to hell in a handbasket. And a lot of us don't really care because we've lost sight and reality of what eternal Condemnation and doom is really about. We've lost sight of hell. And so our missionary endeavors, 
and our outreach programs don't have the kind of courage and creativity and fervor that they need to have because we've gotten fat and sassy and comfortable in our pews. But God is all about lost people. In fact, I would tell you today, and I feel pretty strongly about this, that though we like our comfort and our lazy boy recliners and our remote controls and our climate-controlled vehicles with Corinthian leather and seat warmers, that God is not concerned about our comfort but instead God is concerned and His heart is broken over lost people. Like the Ninevites. Like your neighbors. Like your co-workers. Like some people in your family. Like some people who live on your cul-de-sac. But here, here is Jonah, lulled to sleep in the comfort of the shade And what does God do? Overnight, God appoints a worm that chews through the vine. Isn't it interesting that the worm obeys God? Jonah didn't obey, but the worm obeyed God. Jonah didn't obey, but the the wind obeyed God. Jonah didn't obey, but the, the great sea fish obeyed God. Jonah's the only one who's disobedient in this story. Jonah was as mad as a wet hen. Why was he mad? Because his comfort had been removed from him. The shade was gone. He was in the blazing sun. The sun was beating down on his head. God had caused a a hot east wind to blow up, like the Santa Anas blow in over the California coast. God had caused this east wind to blow up, and it was hot as blue blazes. It would have thought you, it would, I would think, make you think of hell. It was so hot. But instead of thinking about that, Jonah was just concerned about his own comfort. And God comes out to Jonah once again. Once again, God shows mercy and grace and says, Jonah, do you have any right to be angry over the fate of this vine? And here we come, my friends, to the climax of this story. God says to Jonah, Jonah, you're concerned about a little shade. You're concerned about the loss of your comfort. You're concerned about Israel. And yet you want to have Nineveh blasted to a cinder. Is it right for you to be concerned about some people and not others? Shouldn't you want grace and mercy to be shown to everyone, Jonah? Don't you get it? Again, Jonah was okay as long as grace was shown to the people he liked. But he didn't like it when God showed mercy and grace to the people that weren't his friends. Once again, we see the grace of God toward Jonah. He could have just left Jonah alone. He didn't. He could have left Jonah at the bottom of the sea. That's where he deserved to be, but he didn't. He could have left Jonah off the hook and not called him to go to Nineveh the second time, but he didn't. God goes after Jonah again and again and again. Aren't you glad that God is unrelenting in His pursuit of lost people 
like you and me? Aren't you glad that there was a day when God, by His Holy Spirit, was so concerned about your eternal lostness and your destiny that God caused the Holy Spirit to speak to to your heart and, and make you aware of your lostness and your depravity, and He called you to the Savior? Aren't you glad that God was unrelenting in His call toward you? And in the same way that He loves you and that He's been unrelenting in calling you to Himself to experience His mercy and grace because lost people matter to God, God is still calling. He's calling to irreligious people. He's he's calling pagan people, people who don't look like us, people who aren't like us. He's calling them to Himself to be a part of His kingdom because He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. That's what our God is like. So here we are at the end of the story. And I wonder how many times I forget exactly what Jonah forgot. And I wish I had a a more profound way of saying it. But it's just this that lost people matter to God. And because they matter to God, should they not also matter to you and me? What kind of people am I talking about? I'm talking about all kinds of people. The jobless guy whose unemployment compensation has run out, who's now had to face the humility of signing up for welfare and not sure how he's going to provide for his family. He matters to God. The homeless mother with three children struggling to get by on absolutely nothing. She stands in line at the food pantry hoping that there will be something with which she can feed her children that night. That homeless mother matters to God. But it's not only the poor and the indigent that matter to God. All kinds of people matter to God. You see, the wealthy and successful dude who, who's got the world by the tail, the guy who's at the top of his game, the guy who's making a big, fat, six-figure salary, but is spiritually destitute, that guy matters to God, too. They all matter to God. And I'm so thankful that God is not like me. Because the more I look down into my soul, I realize how many prejudices and biases that I actually own. God doesn't look at categories like I do. I tend to think, I like these people. They're my kind of people. I want to spend my time with these kind of people. But all kinds of people matter to God. Asian people and African-American people and poor people and people who have experience and people who have education and, 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 and people who, who just don't fit me, but they matter to God. People who have AIDS. People who are Democrats and not Republicans. People who are living in in lifestyles that I would not choose. 
those people matter to God. People who live on the streets and people who live in your cul-de-sac next door, those people matter to God. Conservative people and liberal people, divorced people, people with different politics than yours, Muslims and atheists and New Age people, Hispanic people and Caucasian people and gay people and old people and young people and children, they all matter to God, every one of them. But the question is, do they matter to you? Do you really care? Are you willing to get out of your comfort zone and do something about it? i got to tell you, this journey that I'm on is not one that I would have chosen. I'll be the first to admit that I like comfort. I love my recliner. I love my remote control. If you looked in the dictionary at the word couch potato, you'd see my picture right beside it. But there are people who don't know their right hand from their left out there beyond these walls who need to know about the grace and mercy that you and I have experienced. And your call is different from my call. I'm not expecting all of you to be called to work with the poor, the homeless, the indigent, those who are living on the margins of hope. I'm not expecting that, that God will do it the same way in your life. But I am expecting this, that a lot of us who have gotten fat and sassy and are way too comfortable in our pews would once and for all step up and be the church and that we would get out of our comfort zones and do something for the kingdom of God. It's interesting that the book of Jonah has no ending. It ends with a thud. It ends with a question. And I don't think that that was a mistake or a matter of circumstance. Instead, I think that it ends in this way because the ball is in Jonah's court, and therefore through this message today, the ball is in your court. The book ends with a question, and this is the question. It's God's question to Jonah, and it's God's question to us today. This is the question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? 120,000 people, Jonah. Should I not be concerned? Friends, I tell you, because God is who He is. He's a God of compassion and mercy and grace. Because I've experienced it, because I know that there have been hundreds of people in this room today that are listening to my voice have experienced the mercy and grace of God, that you and I should be compelled to go out of these doors today and we should do whatever it takes, even getting out of our comfort zones, we should do whatever it takes to tell other people, irreligious, pagan, secular people, about the mercy and grace of God. And so I'm lobbing the ball into your court. And I'm asking you today, so what are you going to do about it? You've experienced God's mercy and grace. So now, what are you going to do about it? 
There's an old hymn that says, There's a wideness in God's mercy. We don't sing it anymore. But I'm here to tell you today, friends, that as we prepare to approach the table of the Lord, that we begin to understand the wideness of God's mercy as we hold the elements of bread and wine in our hands today and we realize just how wide His mercy was because it saved a wretch like me. We must, we must go and tell them. So in the coming days and months, as new leadership begins to urge you to think outside of the box, as a new pastor in the coming months will will encourage you to get out of your comfort zone and, and be prepared to take the light of the Gospel to all people. I'm hoping that you will already be prepared and ready and you won't need a whole lot of encouragement or coaxing, but that you'll just say to your new pastor, point us in the right direction and we will go. If you want to honor the Lord and you want to honor me, then you will do it. Because lost people matter to God. Let's pray. We're so grateful, Lord, for this reminder today that You are a God who is slow to anger and rich in love. That You are a God who is gracious and compassionate. We pray, O God, that that through this timely reminder today, that You would, would empower us by Your Spirit and help us to share Your heart in being gracious and compassionate to lost and irreligious people that surround us in our neighborhoods, in our schools, our workplaces, our city, our nation, and our world. Help us, O oh God, to be willing to surrender and to buy into Your plan of redemption for the whole world. Help us to be willing to give up our own comforts in order to share in what You're doing in this city and in this world. And we pray, O oh God, today for Your divine blessing to rest on this church body and in this city. And we pray that Your love will spread one life at a time in this city and the world, and that you would be pleased to use us in your redemptive purposes in this world for the glory of your name. Now, Lord, as we make our transition to celebrate around this table, help us to be truly grateful for these reminders of your mercy and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.